Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello and welcome to Peter Hart's Military History Podcast. And uh, I'm joined as ever on Zoom with uh, lovely Gary Bain, who's looking particularly gorgeous. And uh, I believe you are accompanied somewhere in the room with the uh, mysterious silent but deadly presence of Fred the farting dog. No, he's gone. He knew you were coming, so I've had to open the door, let him out. He's best He's best in the uh, fresh air, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> A dog that's, uh, yes. Well, what, what today, well, let's get on with it. Let's get on with it early today. Uh, less of this merry, cheerful banter. Uh, we're doing the evacuation of Suvla and Anzac in uh, in December 1915. Uh, why are we doing that? Well, well. Yeah, why are uh, we doing this, Peter? <laughs> well, because uh, Matt said we had to. Matt said, you've got to publicise your book, The Evacuation of Gallipoli, which is coming out on Living History. And I said, what book? And he said, "That you know that thing you were typing, you know, and all the rest of it. And I, oh, that. So what's it about? Anyway, <laughs> well. I've forgotten. It was nearly two weeks ago, Gary. You know, no, it's about the evacuation of Gallipoli, and this is the first of two podcasts that will be dealing with with the subject. This one is on the evacuation of uh, uh, Anzac Suvla, and the second podcast, which will be out in a few weeks, is on the evacuation of Hellas. So, should, should we kick off, Gary? Should we? Should we? Should we? Should we? Should we? Should we? Who's I, I was in the army with a bloke <laughs> called Shuey, actually. Yeah, we don't want to know that story. <laughs> yeah, let's go. And I've never, I've never believed that was animatically possible. <laughs> anyway, um, right. So, l- l- well, if you're looking at Anzac, you, you could, uh, well, Hellas, Anzac, Gallipoli, you could see it as a sort of tragedy in six six acts. Uh, you know, it's, it's classical, just near Troy. So let's be classical. Eh? You're very classical. You had a classical education. Um, uh, the conception. The abortive naval operations, you've got the uh, the landings on the 25th of April, you've got the furious battles at Hellas, which everyone forgets about, uh, everyone uh, Australian. Uh, then we've got the Austra- the Anzac breakout, the new Suvla, uh, accompanied by the new Suvla landings, and then finally the evacuation. But it's, do you know what? People always treat it as if it's inevitable, that they've got to evacuate, that there's no option. But that wasn't the case at the time. And... Uh, 
uh, Hamilton was definitely not Hamilton. Uh, the Sir Ian Hamilton, the commander of the uh, Mediterranean Expeditionary Force or Eastern Expeditionary Force, rather. He he just asked for more men. He always asked for more men. Can I have some more men, please, sir? To and, and Lord Kitchener, he wanted ninety-five thousand more men. Uh, but where were, where were they? Hang on, where were ninety-five thousand men meant to come from, Peter? Well, that's the point, isn't it, Gary? Because the Battle of Luce is going to start on the 25th of September, uh, 1915. Uh, uh, the, the, it's difficult to send guns because it's also the time of the shell shortage. It's, 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 it's just bloody madness. And what, and, what and about the know, French? What were the French doing at this time? Well, <laughs> they were being difficult, Gary. Not like the French? No, no, not at all. Uh, they were being very variable. Uh, they, so... Um, some of the politicians still believed that Gallipoli would be a golden vision of the future, that it would work, they'd get Constantinople, they'd get Syria, that's what they really wanted. Uh, they want, didn't want to give up on it. Uh, Joffre, on the other hand, was dead against it. He was the commander-in-chief of the French army on the Western Front. Uh, some of them wanted to get rid of a difficult general called Sarail and, and pack him off to command a, a force in Gallipoli. There was all sorts of motivations, but the French basically couldn't make their mind up what to do. There was one bunch of people who were quite decisive. Can you think who that might be? A group of people. I can hear Fred. Yeah. A group of people. <laughs> can I come in? I feel smelly. <laughs> who who do you think, uh, talking of smelly, and that's not fair, uh, who do you think were decisive? Who did know what they wanted well, to do, do you think? Usually it's the Germans. The Germans, yeah. <laughs> Germans. And, and and they knew exactly what they wanted to do. Their chief of general staff, Falkenhayn, uh, decided that if the Turks were going to stay in the war, he had to open up a rail, a direct rail route to, to uh, Turkey and uh, so that they could send stores, all the rest of it. But there's something in the way, and that's Serbia. So what the Germans did was negotiate with Bulgaria, get them to join the Central Powers with the aim of knocking Serbia out of the war. That was what they intended to do. That was, you know, and then they could send anything, ammunition, heavy guns to the Turks. They could do what they liked, really. And uh, this worked. And eventually, 1st of October, Bulgaria declares war. Uh, so there's another Central Power then. And at that moment, in truth, Gallipoli becomes a real backwater because uh, the French, really, they want to support Serbia. The British don't know what they're doing. The French go mad. The, the French rush into action and start talking about sending reinforcements. And it, in a way, Gary, it's exactly like at the start of Gallipoli. Nobody thinks about Salonika properly. No one talks it through. There's no proper planning. But they want to send as many divisions as possible. And two of them, two British divisions, one French, are going to have to come from Gallipoli. And they're going to go to Salonika. Yeah. Uh, and and this is which, uh, you know, is a, a Greek port which has access to where they're going to be fighting on what was known as the Solica, the Doiran area. That, that, that third. Now, this meant we were now going to fight on three fronts. Now, we couldn't manage to fight on two fronts, but we're going to fight on three fronts. And people start to go, do you know, do you think we can get out of Gallipoli? And Lord Kitchener says, uh, he's the Secretary of State for War, he says this, what is your estimate of the probable losses which would be entailed to your force if the evacuation of the Gallipoli Peninsula was decided on and carried out in the most careful manner? No decision has been arrived yet on this question of evacuation, but I feel that you ought to have your, that I ought to have your views. In your reply, 
you need not consider the possible future danger to the empire that, that might thus be thus caused. So this is a shot across Hamilton's bows. Now, how do you think Hamilton reacts? I mean, you've got a quote there from Hamilton, I believe. Yeah, I mean, Hamilton was uh, apoplectic with rage and uh, a very, very frustrated man. And uh, he said, if they do this, they make the Dardanelles into the bloodiest tragedy of the world. Even if we were to escape without a scratch, they would stamp our enterprise as the bloodiest of all tragedies. Kay has always sworn by all his gods he would have no hand in it. I won't touch it. And I think he knew that and calculated on that when he cabled. Huh. Well, that's not quite what was going on. Hamilton was already in trouble about his handling of the Gallipoli campaign. We don't need to go into that. Uh, but uh, when on 14th of October the Dardanelles Committee, which is like the War Cabinet, they met to consider, reconsider it, and they decided to recall Hamilton. And their replacement choice was, in my view, an excellent choice. He was General Sir Charles Monroe, who was commanding the Third Army on the Western Front. He's a proper Westerner, and he's a good, thoughtful, modern general. Uh, um, now, uh, while they waited for him to come out, Hamilton's staff officers start to, you know, look at the options for their new commander-in-chief because, you know, that's what staff officers do. And, and yeah, Gary, sorry. I was going to say, was there no plan prior to this for evacuation at all? There doesn't seem to have been. I mean, the last time it was mentioned properly was on the night of the landing when they thought of evacuating. Well, 25th of April, as far back yes. as the 25th of April. But since then, it had just seemed impossible. And when you read the, I mean, the options... I love the options, the staff said. Uh, option one, could we have 10 French divisions, please, to create an attacking army of 250,000 men? Oh, and, and we also, in our total, because we have to replenish our depleted ranks and we've got to fight the Turks all winter because we won't be able to attack until the spring of 1960, can we have 400,000 reinforcements in total? You know, <laughs> Where are they coming from, Gary? Where? And and they reckon a voluntary evacuation, they thought it was possible, but they'd lose 50% of the men and 60, 66% of the guns. And what did they think the Turks would be doing during all this time if they had 250,000 men uh, and waiting for the spring to come along before they could do anything? I don't know. It's madness. The Turks would be moving up their own 250 or 400,000 men. Whatever we could do, it was easier for them to do because they're not the other end of the world. Now, Monroe, when he gets out there, he makes... Uh, it, it's famous. Uh, Kitch, uh, Churchill always says, He came, he saw, he capitulated. Uh, on the 30th of October, he visited Helles, Anzac and Suvla in a single day, which would be hard push to do now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but... Kitchener was poke, poke, pokey. I want to know. I want poke, poke, pokey, you know. Um, and uh, he, he met with his uh, corps commanders. We'd better introduce them. Lieutenant General Sir William Birdwood, uh, British, commander of the Anzac Corps. Lieutenant General Sir Julian Bing, 9th Corps, out-and-out Westerner, sent out there because everybody else was so useless. They'd sent out in August. Uh, he was commanding 9th Corps. And Lieutenant General Sir Francis Davis, often known as Joey, he was commanding 8th Corps. That's the Hellas Mott. Uh, 9th Corps were at Suvla. Sorry, I should have said that. And he, he also talked to some of the divisional questions. He asked two questions. Could they launch a sustained offensive? And could they hold back a serious Turkish at attack? And the consensus was, and there's variations, that they could only manage a short 24-hour offensive and that they might be able to hold the Turks, but if they got unlimited ammunition via Serbia, you know, via Bulgaria, they couldn't. 
Uh, can you imagine a professional soldier like Munro? And particularly, I always like to picture him arriving at Anzac. Is that a beachhead? In any way, do you think that's a proper beachhead? And think about D-Day when it's bloody miles inland. It, it's it's quarter of a mile, half a mile inland. It's bloody ridiculous, isn't it? And he looked at it. He must have looked at the piers. He must have looked at the, you know, the the the, the open beach. He must have looked at the stupid logistic arrangements and he, and he looked at the, the fact that it was coming winter and he looked at the fact it was all under shell fire. In fact, most of it's under bloody small arms fire. And whatever he thought when he left London, he was bloody certain after he'd seen it. And, and you've been. It's not a realistic... Anzac is not realistic as a military option. No, but nothing had changed. I mean, it had been that case throughout. And so, you know, there must have been some critical eyes, for want of a better word, in Hamilton's staff looking at that. I mean, it didn't change. It was the same. Well, there seemed to have been almost a cult. His staff officers were absolutely as bound up with it as him. And and it, one of his staff officers wrote the official history, Aspinall Oglander. He hid hid his name a bit. He was Colonel Aspinall then. Uh, and he took something, I think it was a rich woman, so he took her surname. Uh, uh, he wrote the official history. And even the official history never stops, you know, saying, oh, what a great idea. Anyway, this is what Sir Charles Monroe said. The positions occupied by our troops presented a military situation unique in history. The mere fringe of the coastline had been secured. The beaches and piers upon which they depended for all requirements in personnel and material were exposed to registered and observed artillery fire. Our entrenchments were dominated almost throughout by the Turks. The possible artillery positions were insufficient and defective. The force, in short, held a line possessing every possible military defect. The position was without depth. The communications were insecure and dependent on the weather. No means existed for the concealment and deployment of fresh troops destined for the offensive. Whilst the Turks enjoyed full powers of observation, abundant artillery positions, and they had been given the time to supplement the natural advantages which the position presented by all the devices at the disposal of the field engineer. Now, to me, this is an unanswerable argument. And I believe now that 99.9% of historians of whatever sort, you know, would agree. You know, all right, I'm, I'm you know. Um, and on the 30th, 1st of October, he telegraphs his report back to Kitchener. And he, he says straight to the point, evacuation. That's the answer. That's what you've got to do. I think, it's worth, it, I think it's worth emphasising the date here. 31st of October. Yeah. That's that, his recommendation. Yeah. You know, he gets there, he came, he saw, he didn't capitulate, he made a logical assessment and passed it on. Kitcher had wanted an immediate response, but of course when he got it, yeah, you know, it's almost like a politician, although he is a real army bloke, but he sort of, having got the immediate response, he wasn't happy. His preoccupation throughout is that uh, if you're beaten by a Muslim power, i.e. the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, this will do damage to your Muslim empire which is oh, India. Yeah. I was going to say, he's presumably very concerned with India. So he immediately, instead of taking immediate action or pressing it on the cabinet, goes into his own thought processes and starts delaying. Uh, but to give him credit, he does tell Monroe to begin the planning, you know, the planning process. Um, and it's, a, it's an enormous planning task. I mean, it's just 
unbelievable. It's it's joint service, so they have to have a joint service committee. So Monroe gets Birdwood and De Roebuck. Now Birdwood Anzac Corps and De Roebuck commanding the Navy and the in, uh, the, the the Eastern Squadron. They they they, got, they establish a committee to sort of hammer through the details. This is way before it's been approved. You know, um, back in London, everybody's going what the. I can't imagine what they were saying. And Kitchener, and, and they sort of say, no, 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 no. So Kitchener, you've got to go. Britain's greatest soldier, also Secretary of State for War. You've got to go out yourself because Monroe might be talking rubbish. Off he goes. Um, and, and then there's just the maddest period that I've ever seen. I mean, I give up in the book trying to explain it. Uh, Monroe's stat, sacked by Kitchener, reinstated. The Royal Navy <clears throat> go bonkers and start saying, oh, well, perhaps we can get through the straits as long as there's a diversionary attack. Yeah, 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 we can do it, which is just bollocks. But that wasn't de Roebuck, was it? That wasn't no, de Roebuck. That, that was his chief of staff, Keyes, and uh, one of his senior officers, uh, Weems, Rosalyn Weems. Because wasn't and, there uh, a view that Weems would have to take over from de Roebuck? Uh, he does later on because the robot has to go back ill. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So the Royal Navy's been a real pain in the backside as far as the generals are concerned throughout this period. Uh, they suggest a landing in the Gulf of Saros, which is up by Belair, a landing at Alexandretta, you know, where the, that pisses the French off because it's in Syria. I mean, everything and everything suggested. It's just a barking mad period. Then Kitchener arrives and he, ha- he does a three-day series of visits. Helles, Anzac and Suvla, 12th to 14th of November. Already lost two weeks, Gary. Two weeks Why didn't gone. he do it in a day? <laughs> well, because he's, <laughs> he's older. <laughs> oh, I see. bit like yourself, Gary. He's not in the f- first flush of youth, you know. Uh, so, on arrival... He embarks on a three-day appreciation of the uh, situation at Anzac-Souva. And, and what, well, there's a quote here from Birdwood, uh, uh, you know, what, what, which gives an idea of what, what this professional soldier thought. Uh, Lieutenant General William Birdwood. After a glance round, he put his hand on my arm and said, Thank God, Birdie. I came to see this for myself. You were quite right. I had no idea of the difficulties you were up against. I think you've all done wonders. Because in the end, I think Kitchener is a professional soldier. He might be older. His day might have been 15 years earlier, but he's still got the basic skills. And hadn't he worked with Birdwood before? He knew him, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. So he presumably trusted been, him. Yeah, Birdwood had been his chief of staff, I think, in India. I mean, and, and also they'd known each other in the Boer War. And he could not deny the merit of what, what, what Munro had said. He just couldn't. On 22nd of November, he telegraphs back to recommend the evacuation of Anzac and Suvla. Now, here's another cut. What's missing from that? Hellis. I mean, what a yeah. bonkers idea. In my opinion, I hasten to well, add. The Royal Navy, they're worried about the shortage of small boats. Fair enough. But they also seem to think of it as some sort of miniature Gibraltar that's going to help them in the war against U-boats in the Mediterranean and the Aegean. I noticed last podcast I referred to that as the Adriatic. I'm an idiot. Uh, The Aegean and the Adriatic. (laughs) And And it's worth noting at this point, this is now one month on from... Monroe's original recommendation. Yeah, we're, we're stuck with... We're st- yeah, we're... Uh, uh, so what they do is... Uh, well, not quite a month, but yeah. But, but what he does is when, when, when his recommendation gets back, they decide, oh, we've got to debate this. Uh, you know, the War Committee accept it. 
uh, but say, no, we're going to give up Hellas as well. But then when it goes to the cabinet, they go berserk because they are, oh, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, you know. Um, uh, and they say, well, we'd better defer this to the 24th of November. This is when it's starting to be pushed And this, on this is my it. point about, you know, we're now getting into months later. Yeah. The, the yeah. point I'm trying to emphasise here, Pete, and is Munro make a really, in my view, correct decision very quickly, and now we're a month further on. Um, and whilst they've started planning, probably, you know, uh, without any real direction from above, it's a month further but- on. It, yeah, it's it's. They had some direction because Munro is set on it, and uh, that's one thing that impresses Kitchener: how set Munro is, how, how you know, uh, you know how how he's not going to change his mind. Yeah, uh, and and that does. Uh, Munro's appointed commander in chief of all Mediterranean forces, Mediterranean forces outside Egypt, and Birdwood is appointed commander in chief of what's now going to be called the Dardanelles uh, Army. So left. Uh, Lieutenant General Sir Brian Mahon, whose name I can't pronounce, I'm told it's Mahon, but there you go. He's put in charge of Salonica. And Birdwood is replaced by Lieutenant General Sir Alexander Godley, who we always think is a, is a New Zealand, uh, you know, c- commander. He's, he, he had commanded the New Zealand and Australian division. But then the British cabinet, they meet on the 24th of November. And it, it, do you know what? What? Soldiers often don't like politicians, but Jesus wept. This gives you good reason. Um, you look, who's, look who's for evacuation. Uh, Kitchener, Monroe, most of the senior military officers at Gallipoli on military grounds. Birdwood's worried about, like, like Kitchener, worried about the empire. Um, you've got uh, the general staff of the war office, uh, the war committee. The, but the great men, those great Men, those great politicians in the war cabinet, they can't make their mind up. And most influential of all is a sort of bombastic figure of Lord Curzon, who was the Lord Privy Seal. So he's right up, really involved, you know, in my view. He, what a... You know, and his argument is always quoted. And, and it, you can tell the guy's educated, but Jesus wept. What an idiot. How many people in politics today have we have who have a classical education but are complete and utter fuckwits. And, you know, and this is one of them. Uh, Lord Curzon. The evacuation and the final scenes will be in- enacted at night. Our guns will continue firing to the last moment. But the trenches will have to be taken one by one. And a moment must come when a final salve keeper takes place. And when a disorganised crowd will press in despairing tumult onto the shore and into the boats. Shells will be falling. The bullets ploughing their way into this mass of retreating humanity. Conceive the crowding into the boats of thousands of half-crazy men, the swamping of craft, the nocturnal panic, the agony of the wounded, the hecatombs. What's a hecatomb when it's at home? Of the slain. And when you hear this, do you not think, what a wanker? You know, it... they're, They're ducking... I mean, all he's doing, he's been told by all the professionals that they can't stay. But he's worrying about what will happen if they try and get off. That's not his job. I think that whilst, you know, it's right, potentially it it would have been terrible. It could have been terrible. Yes. But it was no worse than the loss of life that would have occurred from continuing futile attacks uh, at both Anzac and Suvla. And, of course, 
being just shelled out. And what happens if the winter, if the port's destroyed? When I say port, I mean a couple of wharfs and a jetty or two, you know. Anyway, uh, I think one old soldier, he's uh, Major General Sir Charles Caldwell, Director of Military Operations. I think you should read this one because I think it just sums it up. Major General Sir Charles Caldwell. He said, We have four enemies to contend with. The Bosch, the Turks, the Bulgars and His Majesty's Government. And the last is the most deadly. It is deplorable that it should be so. Now, how many modern soldiers, as they think back of the deployments they've made in various places, Iraq, Afghanistan, must be thinking, oh, yeah, I know that feeling. Politicians are the most deadly enemies of all. Um, but how are they going to do it? Now, back at, uh, back, 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 back at the farm, uh, you know, um, Birdwood, his joint committee, uh, Monroe, they're all pondering what to do. And Birdwood is the lead general officer. He's now commanding the Dardanelles officer. And he is he, he his plans are, are he, he he's got a plan to evacuate just Suva and Anzac. Hellas is going to have to wait. Uh, and the Joint Service Planning Committee swing into action. And on that, there was a chap called uh, Brigadier General George McMunn. And he is a logistics e- expert. Now, experts are a terrible word these days. But actually, part of the success of the British Army in the Great War is the bringing in of experts, people who actually knew what they were talking about. And he explained the plan they came up, and they submitted to Birdwood at a conference on the 22nd of November. Now, I want you to note that's before the Cabinet meeting where Curzon gives his blathering. And he says, we propose that the withdrawal should be in three stages. A, preliminary. B, intermediate. C, final. Now, you might say, Pete, everything's three stages. (laughs) When you were planning the destruction of transport for London, you know, you had three stages in mind, I'm sure. Preliminary, intermediate and final. But he goes on. The preliminary stage was to be of an indefinite duration during which troops, animals and stores not required for a defensive winter campaign should go. Now, I should explain that then is while the politicians are making their mind up. The intermediate stage would be that would be that in which troops and guns not essential for the tactical withdrawal should go. We put this stage at four days. So what he's saying there is that four days in which they get off anything they could but leave enough to defend against a, a Turkish attack in the last, you know, the final stage. The final stage would be the actual tactical withdrawal of the essential unencumbered uh, fighting troops, who might, if need be, abandon one third of their guns. OK, so that is the, 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 the sort of thing. And the preliminary stage would commence immediately. They're, they've got no time to waste because they're worried about winter storms. We'll come back to that. Now, the tactical methodology, big word that to me, isn't in their hat. That goes back to Birdwood. And he, Birdwood gives it to Godley's and his old chief of staff, Brigadier General Brudenell White. Now, mark well his name, Gary, because this man, if there's a hero of the evacuation, this is him. Uh, he is in charge of the detailed pl- planning of how they're actually going to do these stages. And he thought it through, and he was a great officer. He decided the only chance was to deceive the Turks uh, to the last minute to leave them in total ignorance until it was too late. Uh, Now, you've got to look at the problems he's facing. At Suvla, there's a three-mile from the front line, overlooked front line, 
quite a distance between the lines, 200, 300 yards often. But, you know, three or four miles to get back to the beaches. So that's one set of tactical problems. At Anzac, two or three yards between them, but only about half a mile to get back. So there's different problems. But whatever... He decides a consistent approach that the final stages should be uh, hidden from the Turks. Everything should be done. Every subterfuge, I can't say that, every subterfuge, every every trick (laughs) should be employed to to try and, uh, you know, keep the Turks in total ignorance. But his biggest thing was the periods of silence. And I love this, because what he decided was that he'd start this right of way. And on the night the British cabinet is engaging in a, what could be called as mutual masturbation session back in London, you know, uh, he institutes periods of silence. What's, what's clever about that? Well, it's brilliant because, I mean, it's really simple. What he wants to do is to try and train the Turks to... Uh, expect period of silences, and that doesn't mean that there's nobody there. So if they if they pop up and have a walk around, presumably on occasions they wouldn't be shot at, and on other occasions they would be shot at, so that they wouldn't quite know whether or not they should take any notice of the silence at all. So it's like a Pavlov's Fred the dog. <laughs> yeah. uh, if only I knew who Pavlov was. I thought that was like a, an ice cream and dessert type thing. <laughs> but it, it is brilliant. The idea, you know, and you could just, you know, you can imagine the, the, the Turks, you know, it all goes quiet. They sort of poke their head cautiously above, nothing happens. They, put, they have a look, nothing happens. They sit on the parapet, nothing happens. They go into no man's land, nothing happens. And, you know, two or three days later, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> And, you know, they must have thought, what the bloody hell's going on? And and confusion. They'd get a bloody nose, and that would make... What would that make, the, the man in the front trench? <laughs> well, you'd be very careful, wouldn't you? Because you'd never know. You wouldn't know. And they thought it might be just part of the new... Perhaps they're a bit short of ammunition, whatever. You can imagine the Turks thinking... Oh, I don't know what they're up to. I've no idea what they're up to, but it's just the new. It becomes a new routine. It becomes something that they live with, that they're you know they're used to, um, and and you know. Meanwhile, they're all building up the logistical things, you know, the piers and everything else. But you see, Cannon Guy, sir, he, they could see they're working on the piers and things. But this is what he thought, and this go on, tell me who is Cannon Guy, as soon as you don't like me introducing. Well, Colonel Hans Cannon Geyser, he's uh, an attached German officer, an attached German officer in command of the Turkish 18th Corps. And he was fooled. He said, rumours and suggestions that the enemy were going to evacuate Gallipoli naturally swarmed around us on Gallipoli. I personally did not believe in such a possibility because, taking into account the English character, I considered it out of the question that they would give up such a hostage of their own free will and without a fight. So, you know, this is, this is, this is something that's going on. There's a phrase that I know you're a, an aficionado of popular culture. You've probably heard it. Winter is coming. No, I never heard of it. That's because you never watched Game of Thrones, isn't no, it? No, never watched it. It's great. It's great. Anyway, winter's coming, and 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 winter is coming. I mean, Gallipoli's lovely, isn't it? Lovely. It's lovely. It's always sunny and warm. And In fact, it's lovely. too warm sometimes. It's so warm. Lovely and warm. And and 
But round about the back end of October, moving into this November, particularly late November, things start to change. And on the 26th of, uh, of Friday, 26th of November, it starts to pour down. Now, we did a, I, uh, I did a podcast on the Great Storm, but so I'll just sketch it out. You can listen to that on Living History. But there's a tremendous storm. The rain teams down like there's no tomorrow, like a bloody monsoon. And then 1 o'clock next day, Saturday, a real tragedy. Um, it The rain stops and it freezes. And then it starts to snow. And it is just the perfect storm, Gary. And can you imagine just being sat there, you know, in a flooded trench that's freezing for hour after hour? Not not for a couple of hours or even five or six hours, for three days. I mean... Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out, Peter, isn't it, that, that people think of Turkey as a holiday destination and sometimes, you know, go all year round. This this is coming from the Russian steppes, isn't it? And and we're not talking just cold. We are talking Russian cold. Those really freezing temperatures, um, insufferable temperatures, I would suggest. Twenty below zero. Some of them say. I'm not sure that's Fahrenheit. That are going to be Fahrenheit. I'm, I'm certain. But you know, it's ju- it's just ridiculous. Uh, there's there's a quote from a Colonel Bendel of the Second Third Londons, and it's sentimental, but it gives you the idea. Two brothers of C Company had died together. The arm of one was round the other's neck. The fingers held a piece of biscuit to the frozen mouth. It seemed a strange and inexplicable thing that these men who had come to fight and had fought bravely had been killed by the elements. And Gary, this is serious. Two hundred die of hypothermia, frozen to death, essentially. And 5,000 had to be evacuated with frostbite, hypothermia, and basically near death. Uh, this is a terrible time. Uh, and can you imagine, uh, do you think the politicians were suffering an equal amount back in London? No. And, and I mean, it's also worth noting, you know, it, it wasn't just the men that were suffering, animals, you know, you had the... the the, the animals were suffering. The infrastructure was suffering. You know, damage was being caused. The whole thing. I mean, frankly, had the politicians pulled their finger out, you might have actually have, have been able to evacuate before that storm. But hey ho, we didn't. But uh, absolutely, it's. I think it's terrible. And still, that that the, they've got ninety-one thousand men. You know. Uh, 200 guns, 5,000 horses and mules stuck ashore at Suvra and Anzac at the end of November. Remember our dates? Remember how quickly Monroe... I mean, and still, they'd had their meeting on the 24th. We can't decide. Let's have another meeting. They don't decide until the 7th, 8th of December, as far as, you know. So it's going on, it's going on. Uh, it, You know, and the port... the. We keep saying port. I keep saying port. The few, a lot of the piers have been smashed up. You know, it's it's awful. Anyway, the preparations carry on. Uh, you know, uh, in accordance, they're in the intermediate, they're in the preliminary stage, and some of the men began to notice what was going on. You know, they just see, well, hang on, what's going on? Why, 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 why aren't we bringing new stuff ashore? Why, why are the stores being hollowed out? You know, and this is Lance Corporal Edgar Rule. He's 14th Victoria Regiment. And he says, one of them put it to me like this. I came here with the first and I'll be here with the last. He was from Yorkshire, part of... Uh, of yeah, uh, clearly. Yeah. 
We're, we're sneaking off like whipped curs, remarked Sergeant Gaining. That's a fake name. I'll, I'll put his proper name in the book. Those who had mates in the cemeteries on the beach were fearful, lest they, should be, they, they would be violated, and the thoughts of leaving them weighed heavily. One man said to me, Why can't we have another B? Dash, 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 go at them. Now, whenever they do this, I always, my mind, my modern 20th century mind, puts in, does he mean bastard, bugger, <laughs> or bloody? I mean, it's so. It just well, I think makes you could think. use. I think you could use any of them. Yes, you could. So, Brudenell White is still uh, planning away, and and you've got to give credit to him. But also, of course, Godley gets the plans and accepts them. He could have just said no, uh, and everything's being done. They would evacuate stuff at night, and then vessels would be caught. You know, seemingly caught uh, offshore landing things. And they'd land men and stores, but then they'd go off again in that. It's all ruses. Uh, Men would be seen coming and going, but they're not, you know, the boxes of stores being unloaded would be empty. Uh, They'd leave the tents up when a unit was uh, uh, a thing. They even had men driving about in empty carts just to kick up the usual dust clouds, uh, walking up and down tracks, kicking up dust. You know, just making people realise it would think it was the same. They flew more missions, partly to hold back the Turks to stop their aircraft, seeing what, exactly what was going on. But also, it gave the Turks began to think there was going to be another offensive. Because there's always these two things. Are they evacuated or are they planning another offensive? And this is always going on. But the big guns start to come through, through from Bulgaria, through the lines, the new open line way from Germany and Austria. And they get quite a few Austrian mortars, big Austrian. And at Anzac, they start to get the first serious shelling by big guns with shells that explode with devastating effect. And this is Private George Scott, 4th New South Wales Battalion. He says, We were resting in Victoria Gully till then untouched by Turkish shell fire when I was called away to watch a two-up game and maybe hoping to try my luck as well. Two-up's a gambling game, which I've never understood, but Australians love it. Um, suddenly a newly arrived howitzer battery dropped one among the five or six I'd just left. All died. Among them I found Sergeant Jack Herbert, just alive. Before he died, he whispered, They've got me downstairs, Scotty. No more fun for me. And I don't know why. I've always thought that it's just somehow, I don't know, really sad. They've got me downstairs. No more fun for me. Uh, We all know what he was thinking about. Uh, uh, And he died. And I have actually visited his grave. I think he's on number four Australian parade ground. Um, I'm not quite sure about that now. Now, um... We brought up more naval guns, naval sh- you know ships to sort of because we were taking guns off, so our battery would be trimmed down for first to be four, then to be three and two, you know. But uh, this is a, a quote. Uh, Who are you this time? This is a, a quote that I think you know explains for, and it also shows if you if you fire, the Turks will return fire. So tell us this quote. Who are you, Corporal Frank Phillips, Southwestern Brigade Field Ambulance, RAMC. Watched three big battleships in the bay in front of us bombarding the Turks. Their noise was deafening. We could see some of our shells pitching on yonder hills. The Turks must have had a very warm time, but they were returning fire. I had my mess tin and had gone down to cookhouse to draw tea when some shells came over very close to us. A man was stretched out by his dugout with his head blown practically off, only the fleshy part of his face remaining and his lifeblood was quickly flowing away. 
I could see all was up and had to get under cover quick as another shell came over, scattering dirt and bullets on the roof I was under. The dead man's dugout, whose name was Corporal Batstone, a very decent fellow who I knew well. I collected up pieces of his head and brains, some scattered about 15 yards from where he fell. Then I had my tea. I, I mean, that, that just brings you to a bit of a, a stop, doesn't it? Or, it, I mean, literally with me there. Um, uh, it, it, I mean, that's quite it, extraordinary. It, it's the juxtaposition, isn't it? Of, uh, and then I had my tea. And, uh, but, of course, that's what, I mean, that's what lived life at Gallipoli was like. You know, you had to live, carry on. Now, Birdwood gets news at 9.30... Uh, on 9.30 in the morning, at, on the 8th of December, that the government had finally <laughs> made its mind. Yeah, well done. Uh, it's now, of course, winter. You know, winter's not coming, it's come. Uh, you know, it, but this started in October, but now it's bloody December. Um, and the intermediate st- thing starts. They've got to get off 77,000 men by this stage, 188 guns. They'd send a lot they'd sent off the the units have been almost destroyed by the uh, the great the great storm um and uh, they were going to reduce it to 40,000 men 20,000 at Suvla and 20,000 at Danzac uh and and then that would be a, an intermediate stage 10 days and then there'd be a two day final stage and that was going to be the 18th and 19th of December um so it you know that why, that, why that, two that, days uh, because the Royal Navy could only deal with 20,000 men in one night. Okay. So, mm. it, you know, that's what it has to be. Now, I want to play tribute to the engineers uh, and the working parties there, because you, you, you know what the infantry have to do. They have to do the digging for the engineers a lot of the time. They're road building. They're, they're, they're putting in roads where necessary. They're, they're crossing the sandy areas. They're, uh, they're building light tramways. They're really working on the piers. They're trying to bolster them, put, hammering in pier. Uh, uh, oh, God, piers is the word for... They're hammering in things and... <laughs> see, you're helping. <laughs> hammering in sticky things, uh, which have then the, the hold back and then filling them up with stones, wooden cribs they used, uh, you know. Um, they lay in mines in no man's land. They're wiring up they're, with trip wires. Uh, they've got barbed wire everywhere. There are 3,000 mines laid in the wide no man's land at, at Suvla. They're preparing the supply dumps for destruction. Uh, you know, they, they'd be set with, with explosives and, and, uh, and to be lit when they've gone. They're, they're working on the last-ditch defences. <laughs> Now, at Suva, they sort of stretch down in line and just goes round, uh, you know, uh, Lala Baba, covers off the, the two main where they're going to leave. But uh, to be absolutely honest, when you read the last ditch line at Anzac, it almost is the Anzac line anyway. It's just it goes around pluggies, you know, walkers, pluggies and, and down McLagans to the beach. And, uh, and pluggies is going to be the keep. Um, by now... Some people, like, have guessed, you know, like we had the bloke before who was guessing what was happening, but people aren't sure. And this is uh, Brigadier General. You're going to be... Bri- I'll, I'll introduce you, if you don't mind, Brigadier General John Monash, who's uh, 4th Brigade, and, and he says this. Being bound to secrecy, I can take none of my staff or COs into my confidence. I'm almost frightened to contemplate the howl of rage and disappointment there will be when the men found out, find out what is afoot. A foot? It's about 12 inches, Gary. Thanks, mate. 
Oh, sorry. Uh, the old ones are the best, Peter. Yeah, they are. They are the best. One sign that things are, are, are changing, and 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 it, as we move, you know, tenth night. I mean, we're going through ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth of December. Is that there starts to be more food about, you know, uh, because actually they're just using it up. Uh, uniform. You can get yourself a nice new uniform. Uh, do quartermaster sergeants normally give out uniforms at the drop of a they hat? Are, they are noted for their generosity. Generosity of spirit, the kindly nature. I, I know one uh, quartermaster called Chris Carling, Major Chris Carling, but he has the spirit of a regimental sergeant major. I think no one would argue with that. Uh, he was uh, in your brigade, wasn't he, when <laughs> at TFL? He liked to call it a brigade because he had uh, four colonels working for him, which said, he, although he himself was at most a lad's corporal, as he had four colonels working for him at TFL, he this chose to describe himself as big Brigadier Bane for, for quite some time, didn't you, Gary? Yeah, the whole of the meal. <laughs> anyway, 14th of December, they're finally briefed. Um, and now they really start. And, uh, and the men spend a lot of time, and I've put some of this in the book, setting up booby traps. You know, so you open the door of a dugout, it sets off a mills bomb. You you tread on something. It sets off a mills bomb. Trip wires, bombs. Uh, you've got the usual thing, Gary. Oh, that's an interesting looking something. <laughs> you touch it, bang. Um, yeah, I got I got a question about this because they they were very busy setting up these booby traps, and I think they were. I don't know if this is true or not, but I think there's a suggestion that Godley wrote a letter to his opposite number, referred to him as. Uh, Excellency, um, where he was, he was asking them to to look after their dead and you know be respectful. And yet we're running around setting up all these booby traps. Yeah, I mean, I should be grateful if your excellency will take measures for their special preservation, the graves in the territory under your command. They've fallen far from home, fighting gallantly in our country's cause, and deserve that. Blah blah blah. And, and yeah, he did. And we're not sure whether he left that message. You know, there's different sources saying different things, but. What what I would like to do is say, will the Turks respect the graves? Let's leave that and let's come back to it in a sense at the end uh, and see whether they do respect the graves. Yeah, you know, right. uh, because that that is that is and Godly leaves that on the I think it's the seventeenth, eighteenth when he leaves. He, he's meant to have left it. He certainly wrote it. Whether he left it is a completely... It doesn't matter whether he left it or not, really, in, in a sense. It's its what's going through his mind. A lot of them... You've noticed before, I'm sure, people mention the graves. You know, the, the, as they're going past them, they, they say, we're leaving you behind. And there is this underlying fear that, that, that something terrible will happen. Firstly, the desertion, although they're dead, but you, still desertion. You're leaving your mates. You're leaving your mates. Are their graves going to be respected? Is an underlying fear. They also, it's at this stage, 17th, that they start ramping up the, the cunning ploys. You know, it's the old blackfella. I have a cunning plan. And there's uh, Charles Bean. Uh, who's the Aust- Yeah, Blackadder. What did I say? Yeah, Blackadder. Yeah, I've no idea what I said now. Uh, Charles Bean took a last walk on the 17th round Anzac. We didn't take long. Uh, and you know what he saw has become a legend uh, well the first thing I love is uh, he says this a party of men were detailed to smoke and lounge about <laughs> on artillery road corner where Gaffer Tepic could see well, I love that well, can you imagine soldiers being told I'll to volunteer for that <laughs> 
and, and, and to carry, you wouldn't volunteer for this one, and to carry war, water like staged soldiers round the road, through a sap, and then back again. So, like, so you know, when soldiers march on the stage, go around, then march around the back and come out the other side. Uh, a little further on, I found the light horse playing cricket on Shell Green, Major Onslow batting, while the shells are flying far overhead. And that is the origin of the famous photograph, which even you, Gary, who don't like cricket, you seem to prefer football, although your choice of football team is eccentric, um, because the word football and Arsenal are not often closely connected, are they? Be honest. Is that a sulky silence I hear? No. (laughs) Or have you accidentally switched your mute button on? As a Liverpool fan, enjoy your asterisks. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) that's good. Um, So... Uh, they're, they're playing cricket and a couple of shells come across but it, there's a very famous picture of that and, and I believe the Australian cricket team came out and sort of redid it uh, you could, there's a cemetery there but there's a piece of grass in front of it where it took place and hopefully Matt could put that picture up people can see that we will put it up, either him or me, uh, or you. Uh, uh, since the end of November, something like 50,000 men had been evacuated, and the Turks still don't seem to know what's going on. But now we're coming to the last two days, the final stage. And that, like, it's like the denouement. It's like you watch Inspector Sausage investigates. You know, there's been 87 serial killing murders, and, and, and then you're going to find out who it is in the final five minutes as he explains to the seven people in front of him which one of them did it, you know, who done it. Um, and which are, the, the question is, though, we know the result. But can you imagine, if you're in those last 20,000 at Hellas, uh, sorry, at uh, Suvla, last 20,000 at Anzac, you don't know whether you're going to live or die. Remember, there were, there were predictions up to 40, 50, 60% could be killed. Um, not killed, killed or captured or wounded, you know. Uh, this is a very tense part. Now, at this point, the staff work really ramps up and every single man is allotted a place. And to simplify it, it they're divided into three parties. Part A, Party A, I love that, the army mind, would depart on the first night. So that's the night of the 17th. Um, B, they'd leave at 9.30 on the 8th, uh, 9.30 at night. You know, so that's that's when it's dark, fully dark. And they'd creep off then. So you mean 2100, 2130? Yes, I do mean, yes, I do mean 2130. You just got that in just in time. Uh, and sea parties, they'd move off between 2 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the morning, he said deliberately. <laughs> or would you prefer it's 0200 and 0300, Gary? Because I noticed I've written an and you've, noticed, you've written 1500, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention that. Well, I've mentioned it because it made me laugh. So there were three C parties. They move off in stages, you know. So, so they're probably known as C1, C1, C2 and C3, I would imagine, Gary. And the C parties, I would imagine, are thinking that is the, you know, the worst of the three parties to be in. That is the most vulnerable of the three parties. Oh, definitely. And they, they call for volunteers and they always say every single man volunteered. Uh, you, know, you know, you always take that with a pinch of salt. But I believe, because uh, the British historian saw it as well, so, you know. The morning of 18th of December dawns, um, you know, and, and the, the, the men, they spend the day destroying the stores. You know, minutes seem like hours. You know, it's just going on and on and on. And that night, the night of the 18th, the A parties leave. And there's no problem at all, Gary. 
So that leaves just 10,000 at Suvla and 10,000 at Anta. Could they do it? And it's so exciting. Could they do it? So much could go wrong. If the Turks open fire, what I want to say, if they open fire and smash the piers, they couldn't get them off. Or even if they just disrupted the schedule. It, day, there's only so many hours of nightfall, and then they're going to be there, say 3,000 left, 5,000 left, trapped, the piers broken, and, and, and they they attack and kill or capture them all. You know, it's really tense. But even now, if, if you're looking at, you know, a measure of success, even were they to not get the final 10,000 off, they would still have seen the evacuation as successful at that point. Probably at that point, yeah, because they were going to get, they would, you know, whatever happened, they'd get half of them off in the last stage, I would imagine, you know. Now, the last day, it's not a day of rest. It's Sunday, the 19th of December. It's not a day of rest. So much to do it. They're smashing boxes of rations. They're prodding tin cans. I don't see the point of that myself. There's millions of the buggers. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're doing all sorts of things. The final mules who move the last guns are being shot. By, thank, thank you for your service. Yeah, and not an easy task, really not an easy task. No, Uh, most of them get off. It's a hell is that they couldn't get them off. They're checking the mines, the booby traps. They're they're doing all this. And here we have the famous self-shooting rifle, automatic rifle, if you're not automatic, but you know. Uh, Tell us about this. Uh, This was invented by and you will be him, Lance Corporal William Scurry of the 7th Victoria Battalion. And this thing dominates all accounts now of the evacuation. But in actual fact, I'm not sure, sir. You tell the story. He, he describes it well. I think just to, to be, uh, to be uh, uh, fair up front, it, most people would think that you squeeze a trigger, and generally when you're firing, you do. But in order to make these fire, you needed a jerk. And he, he describes exactly how that works. It occurred to me that if we could leave our rifles firing, we might get away more surely. The sand of the hourglass was the first germ of the idea. If the sand could be made to trickle from above into a container attached to the trigger, the increased weight would finally release it. Next day I started on the idea, but it wouldn't work. The sand wouldn't run and the trigger wanted a jerk to pull it. The jerk was easily got over by the cartridge box full of dirt, but water was the only thing that I could think of to replace the sand. So the cartridge box would fall, that would create the jerk, and the gun would fire. But the point about this is, this is what you you get nothing, self-firing rifles, it it dominates the popular myth. And when Matt puts it up, I bet he has a picture of a self-firing rifle. In fact, when he put the advert up for it, he did. The 7th Victoria Battalion mentions only six of them were left, and they only delayed the firing by 30 minutes. But that 30 minutes is vital at Anzac. It's the difference of time between being on the, you know, uh, the second ridge and, and being back in the, you know, you could get back to the sea in that time. Now, it's a, it's a terrible day. It, they're, 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 they're on tenterhooks. And during that day, the Turk guns would open up and everyone would think, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, they're going to, they no, no. And then the guns would stop. Uh, an aeroplane would fly across. They'd go, oh, my God, oh, my God. You know, uh, the Turks would do something, fire a mortar or something. It's all going on. Uh, and, 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 and that day... When you talk about the, it's a very short day. It's probably one of the shortest of the year, although I'm not good at when that date is. But it must have seemed like the longest day, to use a, another famous phrase, for the people who are just waiting, waiting for nightfall. You know, can you imagine it, Gary? 
Yeah, it must have been terrible. And I've not seen that film either, The Longest Day. <laughs> it's too long. Now, um, Birdwood, during the day, Birdwood plays his final visit to Anzac. And I love this quote. Uh, I found it. I'd seen it before, but not noticed the humour of it. Um, so I, I think it's like a cheap, a really cheap metaphor for the whole Gallipoli expedition. <laughs> and when I say it's a cheap metaphor, it's the sort of thing that a serious historian, an academic of some sort, they, they wouldn't use it because they would think it was scurrilous. But I love it because it just sums up for me Gallipoli. Carry on, Gary. You, who are you? Uh, I'm, as you said, I'm uh, General Birdwood. So there was a curious little incident as I landed at Anzac that day for the last time. Matting had been laid on the landing stage to ensure silence when the men embarked. And as I stepped ashore, I caught my foot in this and fell flat on the beach. At that particular moment, the landing stage was under rifle fire from the enemy. And not unnaturally, everyone thought for a moment that I had been hit. What bad luck that would have been on our very last day. And I just love it because it's the, it's the idea of falling flat on your face on landing. At Anzac. It's pretty well what... I'm not denying, decrying the, the, the heroism of those Anzac troops, but that's fundamentally what happened. They fell flat on their faces and ended up with uh, the world's smallest beachhead uh, able to do nothing. And, and that rather sums it up. Now, I'm not going to... The, the evacuation of Suvla, there's only so much time for a podcast. Evacuation of Suvla goes without a problem. They, they get back the three miles, they leave behind, but what, surely they couldn't do it at Anza. The trenches are only, you know, all along Second Ridge. So it's the, you know, by the side of the road that runs along it now, Gary, that we've walked along so many times, driven along. It's just the Quins, top of that Lone, Lone Pine. I mean, they're, they're literally measured in yards. Yeah, and, and Quinns, of course, it's measured in feet. Could they do it? Could they do it? If they get caught, then they're going to get they're, they're going to get shelled out. They get the, the piers will be destroyed and they'll be trapped. Uh, now they dug several mines, uh, three mines especially that they used. They dug more, but they used the three under Russell's top, which is where the neck is. You, you know, you, you've got that in your mind. And this was to disrupt any Turkish attack. Uh, the day passes much as at Suvla, and at 2100 hours, so half an hour early, the uh, B parties start to go back. Now, I want, it's pitch dark. Now, they've, they've laid down flour and salt and things to form a way, but it must have been murder. No lights trying to get down, you know, and from 2100 hours, basically, there's only the three C parties, C1, 2, and 3. Um, and if their Turks attack then, they're not going to get back. They're not. Uh, and up on Lone Pine, the second lieutenant, George McElroy, and his C3 party, 24th Victoria Battalion. And he says this, our orders were clear. The position must be held, even though attacked heavily, until 3 a.m. at all costs. The phone from the rear was cut off, leaving three officers and 34 other ranks doing their best to sound like a whole battalion, though feeling somewhat isolated in the world. For as far as we could tell, no other Australian troops were on either flank for some distance. When each officer, precisely at 2.40am, moved along his front with instructions to slip quietly out to the rendezvous in Gun Lane, instead of the frenzied anxiety to depart which one might have expected, the popular idea of the moment seemed to be, just another shot at the old... Asterix, what is it, bastard, I'm going to... Just another shot at the old bastard before we go. 
That's the spirit of the Aussies. The 24th Battalion leave Lone Pine at 0240. Quinns and Popes are held till 5 to 3. Russell's top till quarter past 3. Walker's Ridge finally abandoned about half past, well, 25 past 3. The men have got blankets wrapped around their boots. They're following these trails and they're going back. And this is when the two things, you've got the self-firing rifles going bang every so often. Not many but just a smattering of shots, yeah? But the other thing is, effectively, you've got a silent period. And there are you. There are you in your trench. Now, you're a Turkish... Let's make you a lance corporal. What would you do? It's all gone quiet again. Do you report that? No. To your, to your officer? No. Say I'm the officer. Do you report it to me? No. Because what will I do... You'll make me go out. To... And what happened to your mate, Bolent? Blent, your mate. What happened to him when he went out? Uh, he got gravely injured and went completely mad. Ramazan. What happened to Ramazan, your other mate? Uh, yeah, he was. Exactly. He was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so they're all creeping out. So the, the curiosity killed the cat. Could be what well, they've been, they've been, it's psychology. They've been taught not to investigate silent periods in modern pit in parlance. They've been conditioned, haven't they? They are now conditioned uh, to behave in a particular way. It's isn't it brilliant, Gary? I just think it's brilliant because what the normal way, if you're evacuated, would be to launch a huge diversion, but not here. Here, it's a new thing. It's brilliant. Now, the last party of the engineers upon Russell Top. Lieutenant James Caddy and a, and a bunch of sappers are from Fifth Field Company, Australian Engineers. Now, t- tell us what you, you're going to do this. Can you read this one for us? Sergeant Conton pushed down the exploder connected with the mines in L8 and L11. And immediately they're, they're the afterwards... What, hang on. They're, they're, they're the two mines stretching onto, uh, through, under the neck. Yeah? Yeah. Sorry. That's fine. And immediately afterwards, I fired the big mine in Arnold's Tunnel. The ground vibrated. There was a dull roar and two large craters were formed. Immediately afterwards, heavy rifle fire opened up along the whole of the enemy line. After slabs of gun cotton to destroy the exploders had been set off and Corporal Penny had lit the fuse of the mine on the track leading down to the beach, we made as quickly as possible down the hill. Now that explosion, especially that, no, I didn't feel it because I disrupted you first time. Arnold's Tunnel, we've seen the crater last time we were there. That, you know the people who've been responsible for clearing the battlefields showed us that crater uh, at the back where the buses turn round at the neck. Yeah. That, that crater is still there. Uh, it killed 70 Turks and the Turks burst into life, but it's too late. And when they get back down to the beach, Sergeant, uh, Second Lieutenant George McElroy, he's 24th Victoria still, he says, uh, we crowded onto the barge lying alongside the jetty and between decks was soon filled with a mass of unshaven, haggard and dirty looking diggers, all talking at once. And the air was thick with tobacco smoke after the recent strain of the prohibition on smoking for fear of the, of the lighting of matches might arouse suspicion. One can imagine the clamour which broke out. Everyone at once trying to tell the other fellow his experiences. They all get away. I think two are lightly wounded. And, and so all along the coast of Anzac and Suvla, they've got away. And the, the stores and dumps are, are, uh, are set fire to. The warships roll in and start to uh, bombard, the, the, you know, to destroy as much. 
In total, they got off 83,048 men, 186 guns and 2,000 vehicles and 4,695 horses and mules. They had no casualties at Suvla and just two men wounded at Anta. It is unbelievable. It was all too late for the Turks. By the time they knew what was happening, uh, they went forward. Still, there are some killed. Uh, but they flood across no man's land eventually, taking casualties. And Colonel Hans Kanengas, there's another quote from him. Tell, tell us what he says. Uh, he says, The hungry Turks swarmed out of their narrow trenches and flowed like locusts across the English trenches, depots and stores. As was their custom, they received everything quietly, calmly, without any expression of joy. Still, they were not now to be held either by the orders of their officers or by exploding mines or by the broadsides from English warships, which fired wherever they saw troops congregate. Cakes, jam, corned beef, biscuits. These were unthought of delicacies, and here they were lying freely all around. In addition, woollen and rubber covers, coats, boots, putties, etc. What more could they wish for? I allowed them free liberty that day. They had richly earned it. Now, the, the British had done really well, British Australians, you know, everybody had done well to escape. But one thing I'd make is, uh, and we'll come back to this in the second episode, the, the Turks had won. They had earned their, their, their keep. But let's, let's make the final point. Did they respect the graves? Because so many of the men refer to seeing the graves as they went. And they, now, what, do you think they respected the graves? Well, I don't think anybody did immediately after um, the battles of, of the Great War and indeed after the conflict. But you and I have both been there and, and, and they certainly do now. I know, you know, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission do fantastic work there, but they're local people. They're very well tended. And actually, I, I don't know if this is the right way to describe them, but Beach Cemetery, for example, is beautiful. You know, it's and, and it's incredibly well maintained and they show an enormous amount of respect. They do. And they have. Uh, and this, in, despite the provocation, there, there was no the, the, the graves weren't in there. Some of the graves, the, the markers were burnt. That's because they were wood and there were crosses, which is not their religion. But the graves were respected. Uh, but uh, this, in, despite the fact that there were a large number of booby traps left, which are not the most gentlemanly method of warfare. So, you know, in some ways, Godly had a cheek. No, leave booby traps everywhere. <laughs> and, oh, but can you respect our graves? Don't worry about the men we've just killed. And, you know, the 70 dead at Russell's top. You know, there, there, there are two ways of looking at things generally. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you about this. I hope you'll uh, all be intrigued and want to buy the book, which is coming out on Living History, uh, The Evacuation of Gallipoli. This is the first part of two podcasts, but it's been great to talk about it, talking through with you, Gary, because as ever, you've added your insights and just made it, just at times made it just more obvious to me what, what this is all really about. And I'd like to thank you and uh, say goodbye. Well, before you go, I think it's worth uh, also adding that um, if people could get out to the battlefield and, and visit, it is well worthwhile. You mentioned, you know, Arnold's Tunnel and uh, and the crater is now visible. There's a great amount of work making the battlefields more accessible. If you can get out there, please do. Um, you will not be disappointed. It is a fantastic uh, country and you are made to feel incredibly welcome. Uh, and you can get out there and see things on the battlefield that we are talking about.
That's a great point. I can't wait to get back there with you and with Matt, actually. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?